Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. It's estimated that $2.2 billion are spent annually to secure the services of astrologists or palmistry or tarot car readers. It's amazing, isn't it? The lengths to which people go and the expenses that they give in order to have someone give them some insight into what lies ahead in their future. The good news for us who know Jesus is that we can come to Him and we can come to His Word. Even when we don't get any immediate response from Him as it relates to issues that we may be facing in life, what we do know is that we have great comfort in knowing Him as He reveals Himself to Him by the Spirit of God through His Word. David made mention of the power of God's Word as we sang from Psalm 119 about His Word being a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Last night I was thinking about Psalm 12, and Psalm 12, 6 says, Every word of God is pure. Purified seven times. We know the number seven in Scripture means perfection. God's Word is perfect in every way. God's Word is where we go to consult the Lord for direction, insight, encouragement, correction, all kinds of things that we are challenged by in life. So when we think about what lies ahead, not just in our personal lives, but in history, we think about the second coming of Christ. As we've been studying the Word of God regarding the things pertaining to the second coming of Christ, we begin and we will continue today looking from Matthew chapter 24. This is Matthew's representation of the words of Jesus in what is known as the Olivet Discourse. We know that Matthew was not the only gospel writer who records things about that moment and those words. We know that Mark and Luke also do. And we're reading today from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24. Jesus is definitely the one we should consult about all matters, not the least of which is His return. We will not read all of this again. I wish we had time to delve back into it. I have enjoyed personally being examined by the Lord as I've read these words and tried to study them and lead you in understanding what the second coming will be like. And there's only one place to go for that, and that's the person of Christ. He is the expert, since he's the one who's coming again. And so far, what we have seen in the first section, beginning with verse 3 through verse 14, we're introduced to a lot of big trouble. It's the trouble which is leading up to the great tribulation. 
There are some scholars, and there is validity in some of their thinking for sure, who say that these verses, verses 3 through 14, are actually part of the seven-year tribulation period after the signing of the covenant that the Antichrist will make with Israel at the beginning of the time when he has elevated himself, or has been elevated, depending on your perspective, to being the ruler of the revival of the Roman Empire. He will be a man who is a man who conveys peace and prosperity. Signing the covenant with Israel, we saw, would have been a great relief to Israel. Undoubtedly, prior to that, they had been salvaged miraculously by God. When Gog and Magog had come down from the north, this coalition of Russia and their European allies, and combine that with many Muslim nations, they had descended upon Israel, and they had been defeated. Not just sort of defeated, they had been virtually wiped out. There was a small remnant of what would have been an army that undoubtedly would have meant over one million filling their ranks. But what we know is that at this time, at the signing of the peace treaty, there was great relief in Israel, and probably the whole world there would be too. He also provides, that is, the Antichrist's prosperity. We saw that last week as we looked into the book of Daniel, some of the things that he promises. But there's going to be a turning point at the midpoint of the tribulation period, and all of a sudden, it's as if he is a different person, but the reality is he's just showing his stripes. His real identity is surfacing. Rather than being a person of peace who delivers on peace and a person who promises prosperity and has done that, all of a sudden, he's going to turn up the heat. His real identity is one who, in effect, is dwelled, indwelled, rather, by the devil, certainly driven by the devil himself. The second part that we looked at where the perilous times really began in earnest when he, the abomination of desolation, spoken of through Daniel, verse 15 says, the prophet, he will be standing in the holy place. That will be the signal, if we're living, to know that the Antichrist is indeed whom we suspected him to be, and he is the one who is going to usher in three and a half years of havoc on people who know and follow and love the Lord, be they Jew or Gentile. So we're going to have big trouble, certainly, but also there's going to be some big teachers who are the source of that big trouble. We saw this. Look at verse 24, false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. The major false Christ, of course, will be the Antichrist himself. And many false prophets will join in the ranks and their effort is to deceive those of us who know Jesus. And they'll pull out all the stops to do that. What we're going to look at now today <clears throat> is the actual coming of Jesus. And we'll begin with verse 25. 
in chapter 24 of Matthew. These are the words of Jesus. Let's just read verse 25. Jesus says, Behold, I have told you in advance. And the idea of being told, he tells us, and we can bank on what he tells us. We know that by the grammar of the word that's translated have fold. I've said it, and it's etched in stone. You can count on it. Mark adds this word that he overheard Jesus say, I have told you everything that you need to know in advance. So when it comes to our understanding, the lead up to the unveiling of the Antichrist in this great tribulation period, all these things which he has said before in Matthew 24 and also in Mark 13 and Luke 21, all these things, we can bank on them. Jesus is the expert. So we are to listen to him. To be forewarned is to be forearmed, as the old saying goes, and Jesus certainly is doing that today for us, just as sure as he was when he first shared this with his 11 apostles. Look at verse 26. If therefore they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go forth. Behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. The coming of Jesus is going to be something that is clear. It's not going to be masked in any way, as we're going to see. And there will be people who will tell us that we're to go to different places to see the coming of Jesus. And the wilderness certainly is a place that was familiar with many prophets. The prophet who was the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist. Where did he hang out? He was in the wilderness, wasn't he? And people went out by the scores, really by the hundreds, if not the thousands. In fact, in one of the Gospels, the Gospel says that all the people in Judea and the surrounding area Ari went out to the Jordan River in the wilderness to see this great prophet of God. So that was the place to go. But what Jesus says, don't listen to those people. And there'll be some who say, behold, he is in the inner rooms. At that day, the zealots who were conspiring to lead a revolt against Rome to try to get Rome's boot off the throat of Israel, they would have these clandestine meetings and plot their course to try to undo the power of Rome. So what we understand here, Jesus is saying, you don't have to go into the wilderness, nor do you have to go into a place of privacy to understand the coming of the Messiah or his people. Verse 27 says, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Talk about a light show. The ancients believed that whenever there were horizontal sheets of lightning, that they were seen all over the entire world simultaneously. Well, we don't know about that as it relates to what Jesus says here. But what he does say is everybody will see. In fact, in Revelation chapter 1, 
verse 7, the Bible says, when Jesus comes, he will come on a cloud and every eye will see. We'll look a little more closely at that as we work our way through this passage of Scripture. But what we do know is that it's going to be something that is unbelievable. Have you ever seen some of those disaster movies when there's some great disaster coming around the world? I remember Independence Day. Any of you old enough to remember Independence Day? It was uh, released on Independence Day. I remember that. And I wanted to go see it. I was curious about it. I liked the cast of characters. I liked Will Smith and all the others who were in that part. And did you notice when they would show places all over the world... And because of technology, everybody could see what was going on in New Delhi or Tokyo or in Cape Town or other places, Rio de Janeiro, places all over the world were visible in that situation. Well, we're going to have insight into what's going on. I don't know that we'll see all these things, but what we, if we were to see, we would see that there'll be a lot of consternation, a lot of chaos in the world when that happens because there'll be a ton of people who are not ready for the coming of Jesus. And it will be very unnerving to them. In fact, we're going to see what Jesus says about that aspect in just a moment too when we get to the dramatic nature of His coming in addition to what we read here. Verse 28 says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is a simple way of saying that it's going to be plain where things are unfolding. This is a plain, clear picture that Jesus is giving to us. When I thought about vultures in this analogy that Jesus uses, I remember as a boy, I can't remember exactly at what stage of my life, but I was probably in early grade school. Someone, my mother or father, or both of them may have told me when I inquired, when I would see buzzards, we didn't call them vultures in Tennessee, and I guess a buzzard could be a vulture, but nevertheless, I'd see these birds circling, and actually I have seen them in El Paso. Have any of you ever seen them in El Paso? And what my parents told me was simply something's dying or something's already dead. And these buzzards go and they feed off of the carcasses, the corpses, if you will, of these animals who died. The word corpse would indicate not an animal, but a human being. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is a proverb that probably was well known at that time. So Christ's coming is going to be clear. That will be reiterated as we look at the last three verses of the text today. Verse 29, Jesus says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. This is dramatic, isn't it? It's cosmic shaking that is described in the atmosphere. It reminds me the idea of the sun being darkened. It reminds me of when Jesus was on the cross 
And do you remember when he cried out to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you recall that? At the same time, do you recall what was happening in the atmosphere at that time? What happened? It became totally dark. And this was at a time when there could not be a solar eclipse because it was the time when the moon was full and it just didn't work at that time. So this was God's way of saying, this is a time when I have disappeared from the scene at the cross because God who loved his son and who loves us demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in so sending Jesus to die for us, the Bible says God the Father made Jesus Christ the Son to become sin on our behalf in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. And so Jesus suffered the darkness. It was the absence of God, but it was much worse than that. It was the punishment of God. It was the wrath of God. Jesus, in effect, suffered our hell for us in order that we might not have to do that. He, redeemed, he was in the process of redeeming us by becoming the propitiation, that is, the only satisfactory sacrifice for our sin on the cross. Certainly, the Lord will be involved in the darkening of the sky and the moon not giving light, the stars falling from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Some of you may have seen the made-for-TV movie that came out late last year, Don't Look Up. I don't necessarily advise you to watch it. That may be an invitation to you to watch it if I say don't advise it. But it's an interesting satire on just about every aspect of life in the United States, at least. And the scenario is that a comet is on a collision course with the earth. And if it hits the earth, it's going to be the end of mankind, the end of the earth as it was known or would be known at that point. And the characters are interesting characters. They're neurotics and they're people who are exotics. It's the same time in some cases. They're just a, a just hodgepodge of people. And one figure who doesn't even have a name in the movie. It's Timothy Chalmette. He's a real well-loved actor these days. He plays probably a, a late adolescent, maybe young man in his 20s, and he's wandering. He doesn't have much direction in life. And there's a lady who is an astrophysicist who has been the one who actually saw this comet. She was monitoring outer space to see if anything might be coming to earth to disturb it. And she meets him and they end up being a couple in this movie, Don't Look Up. And at the end of the movie, when he and this young lady, Jennifer Lawrence, plays her role, they're together with some other people 
including other astrophysicists who are unable to do anything about stopping the destruction of the world. And they're sitting around a table having a meal. And as they're eating there, someone says, who can say a prayer? They knew their moments were very short. They knew it was coming to an end. And the only one who had something to say was this character that Shalmet plays. And he had been raised, and he was derided, really, made fun of in the movie, because he was raised in an evangelical home. But he knew how to pray to the Lord. And they turned to him. There will be people in this day, when they see these things unfolded, folding, people who don't know Christ, people who have rejected Christ, who have made fun of people who believe in Jesus as the Messiah and the Savior of the world, the Lord, they will have that kind of eagerness to be close probably to people who do know Christ. And look at verse 30, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Here is the sign, Jesus will be revealed. He'll come, but He in His total person and also in His mission will be revealed. He'll appear in the sky, and then all the tribes will mourn. This is interesting. There'll be cosmic shaking. There'll be the sign of Jesus coming. And then also there'll be mourning. Now, different people have given different explanations for this mourning. Some have said, and this is the prevailing view, it's mourning of remorse. Wishing that people had listened to the gospel when it was shared with them. Wishing that they had opened their Bibles and read rather than resorting to other means of finding direction in their lives. Those people will be desperate at such a time and there will be mourning, crying, wailing at the coming of the end in their lives. But here's another suggestion, and I think it has some validity. I'm drawn to this one. I think maybe both will be true. But others have said this will be morning of repentance. In the Beatitudes, do you remember how the Beatitudes begin? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then it's followed by this Beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When the Bible says blessed are the poor in spirit, what that's aiming at is blessed is the person who recognizes his utter depravity, her total inability to make herself right with God because of the sin in his or her life. Spiritual bankruptcy. In order for a person to really be saved, that person has to come to the place where she or he acknowledges, I can't get this done. I am just distraught because I have no hope. We have to come to the end of ourselves before we can acknowledge the need. And the next beatitude, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. What is that all about? 
If you know Christ, you know there came a point in your life where you came face to face with your own inadequacy to make yourself right with God and to deal with life. And then it was a mournful time and it caused you to cry out to the Lord to save you from your sin. I am hopeful actually that this second interpretation, I'm confident that there'll be mourning of remorse. You gotta be remorseful. You gotta be regretful. If you have any hope of being saved from your sins, and that will lead to the gospel coming to you. A lot of people who know Jesus are not eager for the second coming of Christ for the simple reason that they still have loved ones who do not know Jesus. And the thought of their being left behind and being consigned to eternity in hell without hope is very, it tears our hearts out, doesn't it, when we think of that. And so the good news is that maybe in that time, there'll be a turning to the Lord Jesus Christ as these things ramp up in the great tribulation period. The earth will mourn. It goes on to say here, in the last part of verse 30, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And this might actually lend support to the concept or the idea that I mentioned that it could be remorse of repentance. Listen to this. Two verses in the book of Zechariah pertaining to the Messiah. Verse 10 of chapter 12 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one who grieves for a firstborn son. And then verse 1 of chapter 13 of Zechariah. On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Of course, this is talking about the Jewish population. But it could apply to Gentiles too. We don't know for sure. But wouldn't it be wonderful? And wouldn't it be awesome if we could be part of that gathering, that harvesting, if we're here to help people come to know Jesus? One of my teachers in seminary, Dr. J.W. McGorman, Last I checked, he's still living. He's over 100 years old now. He was a tremendous man of God, teacher of Greek New Testament. And we were talking about the second coming of Christ over 50 years ago now, or about that long ago. And we were allowed to chime in. There were about 40 students in the classroom. And he concluded our discussion with this statement. He says, men, we're not on the welcoming committee, we're on the preparation committee. What was he saying? He's saying, we have insight into what's going to happen, but our main responsibility is help 
other people who don't yet know him to come to him. And I believe there's going to be a, an outpouring of the Spirit of God on people who are hungry and crying out to God to be saved. And we who know the gospel, we need to step out of our comfort zone and be on the lookout and ask the Lord, would you dare to ask the Lord today if you know Him? Say, Lord, would you use me to minister to the people around me the gospel of Jesus Christ? Verse 31 says, And He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. We're going to look now in the remaining moments at what is commonly called the rapture. The rapture, the word itself, is derived from a Latin word. Jerome, who translated the Bible from Hebrew, the Old Testament, and from Greek, the New Testament language, in the fourth century, this man was a man who used the word rapture. It's Rapio actually is the word, which carries with it the idea of being caught up or gathered up. The word does not appear in our Bible. I'm talking about the word rapture itself in our New Testament or Old Testament. But the idea of being caught up, gathered together, is indicative of such an event. I'd like to ask you now to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians, where we read from earlier today. And we're going to look beginning with verse 13. As we look at these, you probably have heard the term eschatology. If you haven't, allow me to introduce you to the word. It's a branch of Christian theology and other religions have their own eschatology. And the word eschatology is derived from a word eschatos. You can hear eschatos in the word eschatology. And that word simply means end. That's what the word eschatos. So it's the study. Anytime a word in our language ends with ology on the end, it's borrowing the word logos, which is word, the study, the word about. A certain subject and that would be the end times. When we study the end times we typically think about the second coming, do we not? And all associated with it. But eschatology also has to do with the end of our lives. It's about the end of time but it's the end about individuals lives which has to come to all of us. I like what George Bernard Shaw said, the great British playwright, he said, the statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one dies. It is. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. The term second coming only occurs, interestingly, I, I found this, I was surprised when I was doing this preparation. It only occurs one time explicitly, and that's in Hebrews 9.28. Only one time the word, the phrase, second coming. Doesn't mean there isn't a second coming, it just only occurs one time, that phrase. It's implied strongly in Acts 1.11 as well, when Jesus is commissioning 
the apostles for their ministry of preaching the gospel around the world. But, so we're going to see something about end times here as it relates to our personal lives, our loved ones who preceded us in death, and then our own inevitable end of our lives. Look at verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Let me stop here just a moment. We've had several deaths in our church already this calendar year. And grieving is not a sin. We just don't grieve like the rest of mankind. Why? Because we have hope. What is our hope? It's the blessed hope that we're going to be resurrected from the dead someday. Just like our loved ones who knew Jesus, they're going to be resurrected from the dead. And some of us, I believe, will meet the Lord in the air someday. It could be a bunch of us do. Whatever the Lord's will is, it will be done in that regard. But nevertheless, we have lost loved ones. Most of us have parents, spouses, siblings, good friends. Look at verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and they did, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. I love the way that Paul was led by the Spirit of God whenever he spoke of a believer's death. He equated it with going to sleep. That's a beautiful metaphor. The next conscious thought you and I will have after we breathe our last breath is we're in heaven. We're with Christ. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will receive you to myself that where... I am, there you may be also. Now don't ask me how Jesus can receive each of us individually. He's God. He's got that all figured out. I'm not worried about it. But I'm looking forward to seeing His face and worshiping Him when He comes to take me to Himself. It'll be an incredible experience for all of us. When we fall asleep, we'll be awake in His presence. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. There had been a letter perhaps circulated among the Thessalonians who were believers that the second coming had already taken place. And they were shook up because they had missed it in their thinking. Well, Paul is wanting to scrub that idea. And he's wanting to say to them, look, he hasn't come yet. Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Does this sound familiar? And let me just say this. I should have said it earlier. Jesus is the authority on his second coming. And all the other New Testament writers who write about his second coming and those in the Old Testament who had prophesied about the Messiah coming back to life. All those depend on what Jesus says. And even the book of Revelation is really a commentary on the Olivet Discourse. It's an expanded description of that. And so the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. And this echoes, does it not, the Olivet Discourse? 
where we have all the light show and then there's a lot of trumpet blowing and all those things. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So here's the picture. When we're caught up, first, who's, who's going to be caught up first? Those who have died in Christ are going to be caught up first. And then, verse 17 says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. They're going up, then we're going up. That's what the scripture says. And therefore, we're to comfort one another with these words. I'd like to take the remaining moments to talk about the vocabulary of the rapture. And the first word I would like to pay attention to with you is the word which we encounter in this passage of Scripture in verse 15. Look again, if you will. For this way we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. The word coming is used here. It's used also in verse 13 of chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians. And lest I forget it, let's go ahead and take a look. And in order to get the flow of thought, let's begin with verse 11 of 1 Thessalonians 3. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men just as we also do for you so that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Jesus is coming with all those who know Jesus his saints, people whom he has set apart for salvation and people whom he has set apart to be used by him. And this idea is the idea, the word translated coming in those two places. It's also translated again, coming in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Hopefully we'll get to that in a few moments and take a look at it. But this word is a word, this is the way it would sound in the original language. Parousia is the word. It was used with three intents. One, it means arrival. And coming, both words, coming and arrival, they're synonyms, but they're not quite alike in the way in which parousia is connected to them. And then there's the word of the presence of someone. But when we look at the way in which Paul uses the word coming especially, I believe we could agree when we look at the way he uses it elsewhere. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 16, 17, he says, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus Natus, and also Aristarchus because they ministered to me in a way that you were unable to minister to me. He rejoiced. And then in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7, he talks about how he, when he was downcast, actually says, I was depressed. And so were my colleagues because of the circumstances in which we found ourselves. But 
we found great joy at the coming, the arrival of Titus. Titus, you remember, was a son of in the faith of this man, Paul. So the idea in Paul's writings would indicate primarily that the word is used to describe the arrival. And Jesus is arriving and it's going to be awesome. Those words are just too few and too just anemic to really describe what it's going to be like when Christ comes for us. I'd like you to look at one other biblical writer, maybe two. Look at James chapter 5 and verses 7 and following. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. That word is parousia in the original language. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. Till the coming of the Lord, we're to be patient. I get impatient thinking about the coming of the Lord sometimes, and you probably do also. We want to see him come. We look forward, we long for his arrival. If we were to go to 2 Peter, we could see in the third chapter and the fourth verse, again, Peter, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses this word parousia, coming, <clears throat> talking about the coming of Christ as well. Here's another word that's used. I think this is the key word, parousia. And it was used, before I go any further, outside the New Testament. And we learn what New Testament words mean by studying the way in which those words were used contemporary with the New Testament. This word was a common word used to describe a conquering general or an emperor who was establishing his authority over a city that had come into his possession. In either case, it was describing a person who comes into a city. But also when that word is used in secular literature, the idea is that preparation had been made to receive this dignitary, this potentate into the city. And there would be a delegation. In fact, the whole city would go out from behind its walls and they would greet him some distance away and then they would regale him and they would lead him into the city. And then he would be established in his position. The second word is the word that we have in our language, apocalypse. Apocalypsis is the word actually. And the book of Revelation, the word revelation means apocalypsis. It's that word that's used in the New Testament. And it's used... For instance, let's go to 1 Corinthians. Well, you're, you're probably in, you were in James. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians before we go over to 1 Corinthians. I want you to see this with your own eyes. 2 Thessalonians 2.7 says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. This word revealed is a translation, and it simply means the unveiling of something, and particularly the unveiling of something that's mysterious. 
And so when we think about the coming of Jesus, He comes, and certainly He is the dignitary of dignitaries. He is going to come as a conquering victor. And what we're going to see is He's going to be regaled as a result. But here, there needs to be an unveiling of things. And the apocalypse has to do with the unveiling of Jesus himself when he comes again. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Another place that this word is used. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 7 says, So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you eagerly awaiting the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Christ? I'm giving you a workout here. Let's go to 1 Peter. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, where this word apocalypsis is employed. Chapter 1, verse 7 that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We in this world are going to be tested. Tested by fire is the way in which Peter speaks of it. And quite frankly, the entire epistle of 1 Peter was written in anticipation of the heightening of persecution in the fledgling church. And he's preparing them for that. And he's basically saying, hold on, don't give up. Because when Christ comes, then there'll be glory and honor for you as a result of your steadfastness. And then the third word that's associated with the rapture in addition to parousia, which basically means the arrival, apocalypse, which basically means, or apocalypsis, the unveiling of something that's a mystery, the unveiling of Christ that is coming, is the word from which we get our word epiphany. Epiphania is the word literally. So we see it's translated often as a manifestation. And we looked at this earlier, and you don't have to turn back to this because we've read it already once, but let me just read it again. In verse 8 of Second Thessalonians, and when the, then that lawless one will be revealed from the Lord will slay the breath, will, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance. The word appearance there is the word epiphany or epiphania of his coming. So these are words that are associated with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Give us some insight. In closing, what I'd like to do is talk in a practical way with you for a moment. In the book of James, chapter 1, verse 12, James writes about a certain group of people who are going to receive a crown, a symbol of reward. Is called the crown of life. And those people who receive the crown of life are going to be people who were steadfast in the face of persecution. And earlier, of course, 
in James 1, what does the Bible say? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be mature, lacking in nothing. And those of us, and we all face trouble, don't we? This world is full of trouble. And if you know Christ, look, you're going to suffer for your faith. And we don't have to go around looking for somebody to beat up on us. But what we do, we just need to follow Christ. And it seems like when we read in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, Jesus was sort of a magnet for people who didn't like him. There were a lot of people who loved him. But a lot of people, he just torqued them. And they tortured him as a result. But what we know is we have trouble. And would you trade your salvation for no more trouble? Would you trade Jesus for an end to your trouble? I don't think so. If you really know him, you wouldn't trade him for anything. But we know, when we know Christ, we're going to have these kind of issues. And those who persevere, who hang in, they're going to grow. You and I will never grow spiritually apart from trouble. So we need to learn to rejoice in it. And how can we do that? Because we know who is sovereign in our lives. He is our Lord. This allows the writer of Hebrews to say, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise through Him. Through Him would be through Jesus Christ. And confess His name is what it says. You know what his name is? His highest name? It's Lord, isn't it? What does Lord suggest? Sovereignty. And what did it cost Jesus to gain that name? He became obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that God elevated him to the highest place, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, they shall call him Lord Jesus is Lord of your life. He would never let anything enter your life that does not have the potential to build you up and to bring glory to Himself by the way in which you stay the course when you're undergoing trouble in your life. I don't know if all of you have trouble, but most believers have trouble. We will receive a crown in heaven. And I love what the Bible says in Revelation. When the elders, all 24 of them, received a crown, what did they do with them? They laid them at the feet of the Lord. So it's not going to be a matter of pride that we get the crown or we feel better than other people who didn't get a crown. We won't be looking at everyone else. We'll just be humbled before the Lord. But the other crown, there are two other kinds, and you all and I, all of us, would be eligible for that one that I just mentioned, the crown of life in James 1.12, but also the crown of righteousness. And this is the crown that is reserved. Paul said, after he had said, I have finished the race, I have fought a good fight, I have kept the faith. Do you remember that? 
I'm ready to go. The time of my departure has come because I know that there is laid up for me by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ a crown of righteousness. And then he paused. He said, but not for me only, but for everyone who loves the appearing of Jesus. Do you love the appearing of Jesus? Is the idea that you are going to be possibly, and you will be if you want to be, not in history necessarily at the moment of His return. But you and I all have the capacity and we have the power because Christ said to His apostles before leaving to be at the right hand of the Father, He said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be My witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the earth. And that is to all those who love is appearing. And we know from what Jesus says that when the gospel is preached to the last person who trusts Christ, then it's over. And we say, oh, I wish Jesus would come back. But our lifestyle doesn't necessarily support that because we're reluctant or we're too selfish, or both, to share Christ, to step out of our comfort zone and share the gospel. I'm not trying to put you on a guilt trip. I'm just telling the truth here, okay? I are you. You know, I've done this myself. I find myself in that position. But the Lord wants to use us. And the good news is, we're going to have the crown of righteousness. Isn't that something to look forward to? Every woman, every man in this room, who knows Christ, has the capacity to share Christ with someone in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that doesn't mean you're something weird. You're just sharing Jesus with people. They'll think you're weird, but just share the Lord with them. Right? And the result will be that the gospel will go out and the Spirit will use the Word of God. Remember what the Bible says about the gospel? It's the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Would you bow your head? Are you ready for Christ to come again? To come receive you in death, if that happens to be the case? Or to receive you at the resurrection when Christ comes and the bugle is sounded? And you will be caught up in the air to be with Him. Have you given your life to Christ? Have you sensed an emptiness and an incapacity? You don't have the power to be good enough. Nobody does to be saved. But He's done all the work for you. He's just looking for a contrite heart is what the Bible says, a a real remorse and regret over your sin. Christ is calling you today to give your life to Him so that you can be fixed up to be used by Him the rest of your life. Lord, we want to receive You today. Those who do not yet know You, help them to make sure that they know You, Lord because you've spoken to them today. And we ask you to glorify yourself in their lives. 
And for those of us who have known you a long time, like me, Lord, a long time, too long, Lord, when compared to being one who loves your appearing. Make me a man who loves your appearing, Lord, more and more as the years unfold. And I pray that for all of us. I pray for the young men and women who are here this morning. They have a whole life before them. Help them, O oh Lord, to sell out to you and serve you until you come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.